We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Drew is going to come at this time and uh, read the scripture. Thank you. Romans chapter 6, please. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, that, I'm sorry, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, and having become members of, become, become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Drew, thank you very much for reading. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I'd like to share with you the next segment of our exposition in Matthew chapter 28. And I'd like to start it out this way this evening with an illustration just to um, accounting of a of a event or a series of events that I watched a documentary about, <clears throat> and it had to do with the um, Coast Guard in Alaska, and um, they documented a um, storm that came into their area and left in that area. And it's because it's the Coast Guard, they deal with a lot of obviously fishermen out on the high sea, so to speak. 
and a bad storm came in, and some of the uh, navigators, the sailors, were unable to make it back to land safely. One was uh, kind of um, cast on the rocks, so to speak, and the other one was out, disabled boat, uh, you know, just at the mercy of the ocean. They called for help on their radio, and it was the job of the uh, Coast Guard uh, people and their rescue helicopters to try to capture these folks, uh, get them back to safety, and uh, fascinating documentary. Um, they uh, had several flights in their big, you know, those big helicopters that they have and uh, went out, uh, sent down, uh, tried to send down guys on the, uh, on the, you know, like the hoist thing, you know, to grab one guy and bring him up and then go down and grab another guy and bring him up. One uh, couple guys were injured, uh, hypothermia. They couldn't hold on to what they need to hold on to, so they had to put them in stretchers. And uh, at first they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, drop down the, the line to get them because the wind was so bad that it was taking the line and the little thing at the end of it and swinging it back. They were afraid that it was going to get up into the rear rotor, and then they were toast if that happened. So they had to reel it back in and uh, go back to base and send out another crew and uh, then send out another crew. Uh, did I mention this was at nighttime? Uh, <laughs> that's just terrible. Just terrible, yeah. Um, these people are, you know, this is what their job is, these young men especially, and, and helicopter pilots and maybe former military guys and all of this. But if you think of what they do, it is a tremendous job, a tremendous thing. Uh, they are experts at rescuing people from bad situations. The end of this story was good. They got everybody back, although these people had harrowing hours upon hours on the open sea and, uh, you know, frozen half to death, so to speak, and they finally got them back and got them warmed up and uh, get some hot liquid into them and start reviving their souls. Uh, they run a rescue operation. We need to see the church as more than a social club, as more than a place we gather once in a while. We need to see the church as a Coast Guard rescue operation because there are people out on the high seas. There's a song about that, too, I think, or a couple that picture life in sin that way. And we need to be prepared. We need to be tough. We need to be strong. We need to be wise. We need to be about the business of rescuing souls from perishing. I mean, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. That's another truth that we sing in the song form. And uh, that's, that's our burden. The Lord ends his public ministry on the earth with what we call the Great Commission. And the Great Commission really is the marching orders for the Coast Guard rescue operation that we are. And I want to share that with you. I highly doubt if we'll get through all of this tonight. In fact, I'm quite sure we won't. But I do want to share with you uh, at least uh, one or two points from it. Uh, the Great Commission, Christians are responsible to propagate the faith in Jesus Christ and we're responsible to rescue those who are lost. We are to rescue them using another analogy as firemen rescue someone from the flames of a burning building um, to snatch them from the flames, uh, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, the Bible says, but trying to rescue people nonetheless. So read uh, along with me as I read verse 18 in Matthew 28. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them. Remember, this is in Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. Some saw him, verse 17, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Uh, carrying on with the Coast Guard uh, rescue operation analogy, uh, they did bring those people back into their fold, and they uh, you know, had fellowship with them for a while until they got them revived again. And then they went on their way. Well, the church is kind of like that, isn't it? We come midweek, we come on the weekend, we gather to be refreshed, to be revived, to enjoy fellowship and edification and be strengthened, trained, so that we can go out and do more um, living and more rescue work throughout the week. 
What is the Great Commission anyway? Those words do not appear in these verses. In fact, if you search the entire Bible for it, you will not find that phrase anywhere in the Scriptures. In fact, I knew that, but I did it just in case, and I was right. I <laughs> searched for Great Commission. You don't find it anywhere in the Scripture. But it's the name commonly given by Christians to the last instructions that Jesus gave before his ascension into heaven. And in it, in the Great Commission, he commanded his disciples to multiply followers of Jesus throughout the world, and then they were to baptize those followers as a sign of their new life, and then to teach and train them to keep all that Jesus had commanded them. I would mention just in passing that when the Scripture says in verse 20, this is Jesus' words, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. Uh, I don't like the word observe particularly well. It's really to keep, um, not to just watch. Uh, sometimes people are a little bit more um, spectatorish when it comes to church. They want to see a performance up in the front. They want to see a good speech from the pastor, and they want to go home, and they want to observe, but that's not the kind of observation we're talking about here. This is really to keep, to guard. It is to obey what God has taught us through Jesus, but also it is to maintain the integrity of that body of truth and not let it just kind of you know melt away or disappear. We have to to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have to hold on to that truth if we're to propagate it to the next generation and to be able to follow it properly. Now, from the context of the book of Acts, I know I'm jumping a little bit now, but from the context of the book of Acts, we understand that this great commission is to be carried out in the context of churches in every locale where believers can gather together to worship, to receive instruction, to be able to fellowship with one another, and to be as a foundation or basis for their evangelistic outreach and further church planting. It's in these local gatherings that uh, for worship that baptism and the Lord's table happen, where regular instruction happens, and all the functions of God's work are centered. You won't find the parachurch organization in the book of Acts. There is no such thing in the book of Acts. That's an invention later. It may be helpful. Sometimes it's not so helpful, but uh, the work of God centers around the church, and so we're careful to uh, focus our attention on the church ministry, and parachurch organizations should really only exist to come alongside and assist the church in carrying out the church's ministry, not to be their own kind of ministry. So it's clearly the case that local church-centric ministry is God's program from the book of Acts, from the example of the apostles in the history of the early church. And since, uh, on another note here, since the Great Commission command is itself part of that body of all the teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples that they are to train others to observe and to keep, guess what that means for us? That's kind of a, a circle, sort of like, we're in that. It's Jesus tells to train us in everything, and then we're to do that, and we're to do that, and they're to do that, and then generation to generation, all the way down to us, and then to the following generations. And so it's not just incumbent upon the apostles to go and be missionaries or evangelize the world. It's incumbent upon all their followers and all of their followers and all of their followers all the way down to us. Um, so just in the same manner as the first disciples did, we do as well. Now, it would serve us well, I think, and we'll do this just now, to read the portions of the Great Commission in all the Gospels and uh, a bit of the surrounding context. Now, I have a handout on the church website. I didn't print it. It's uh, actually an 8.5 by 14 legal size kind of paper that is a little um, more difficult to print. For you, but you can look at it very well on your screen and see a color-coded um, parallel, if you will, or harmony, um, not really a harmony, but just a parallel showing Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, and the text that I, I selected as being relevant for the Great Commission. And I'm actually going to, when I read this, I'm going to share with you a couple of portions that you might be surprised about when, that, that I would include them. But let's see what those, <clears throat> what those look like. Um, I don't include all of the text in my handout, especially John chapter 20, because it gets kind of lengthy, and some of it doesn't seem to be as directly applicable to the Great Commission. Uh, for instance, like um, Doubting Thomas is there in John 20, 
and he seems that doesn't seem to be like totally pertinent to the Great Commission. However, I could find a pertinence there because when we go out and preach the gospel, we're going to get a lot of doubters. Now, the Lord said, blessed are those who have believed even though they haven't seen. And so, in a sense, we've believed and haven't seen, so we kind of come under that that little uh, section there, if you will, and say, hey, thank you, Lord, for putting a special blessing on those of us that have believed, even though we didn't have to see the marks of the nail prints in the hands and feet and the poke in the side that the Lord received. We trust based on eyewitness testimony that those things are true, and we trust based on transformation of lives that we've seen that that is true as well. The reliability of Scripture, the historical testimony of the church, a number of other things too, but uh, we don't have to have seen the Lord to believe in Him. Um, I'll give you another example. I'm going to include in this reading John chapter 21, a good portion of it. And in John chapter 21, the Lord confronts Peter and asks him, do you love me more than these? And we've talked about that, what that means before. But for the purpose of the Great Commission, I wanted to call that, I want to call that to our attention because if you look at what Jesus is telling Peter to do, what, what is he telling him to do? Feed my lambs, feed the sheep, tend the lambs. Basically, and Peter picks that up and he, he talks about it in First Peter chapter 5. He says, I'm a fellow elder. Uh, he says to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, not as you know, uh, overseers with compulsion, but rather eagerly, not for greedy gain and that sort of thing. And he's telling us that you know, in fulfilling what the Lord told me to do in John chapter 21, uh, I'm actually carrying out the Great Commission. Because if you notice in Matthew, the Great Commission is not just go and make disciples. It's go and make disciples and baptize them. We made the uh, argument briefly that this happens in association with local churches. And then train them in everything that I've taught you. Well, where does that happen? That doesn't happen on the Internet. It doesn't happen through college. It happens in the church, in the life of the church from, you know, the wee little ones all the way up through all the age groups, and the training is happening here. You know, we don't have to have an accreditation, an accredited institution. Nobody accredits the church. Jesus Christ accredits the church. There's not an association of Christian churches that comes in and says your syllabus is good and you have all the objectives right and your library is right and you know, you have your grade book in order and all that sort of thing. We might should have some of that quality checking, I would say, in some churches. And even in our own, it would be good to think in that kind of regard for, to do things with excellence. But we are here to preach the gospel and to carry on the Great Commission, which, as I'm trying to say, is more than just evangelism, far more than just evangelism. And Peter is kind of exposing that to us in uh, John 21 and in First Peter. Jesus also uh, teaches about the kingdom of God in these passages. And so that, that kind of blows your mind because most of us kind of just put that aside and say, well, that's a different thing. I, I can't handle that. My circuits get blown when I think about the kingdom of God and how it relates to the church and all of that. And then he also talks about the resources that the disciples have attending them when they carry out the Great Commission. Primary among them, he says, you go into Jerusalem and you wait for what? The Spirit of God to come down and you will receive power. And in that power, and we saw that you know, in Acts chapter 2 when we've read that before, that they received the gift of the Spirit of God. They were enabled to speak in other languages so that they could preach the gospel of the works of the wondrous works of God to others in, in their non-native tongues and um, and pass that along to other people. So uh, the, the work of the Spirit of God was there. But let's turn to Mark chapter 16, Mark 16, and just look at each of these portions in turn. We've read Matthew. Now we're going to read Mark 16. And I'm going to start in verse 15, and I'm going to just, uh, I'll read this, and then I'll make a comment on it. I think that's how I'll do it. <clears throat> it says to him, uh, it says here, and he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, 
They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the Gospel of Mark. The ending there after verse number 8 is questionable as to its place in the original text. And I do share that question mark in my mind. I will freely admit that. Uh, the style of this is not the typical Markan style. If you're reading through uh, Mark 1 through 16 and verse 8, and then you come to 9 and following to the end, the style has changed. There's something different going on here, and this argues against the Markan authorship. And so I do hold these verses, frankly, with some tentativeness. I see that they have some truth in them, but I think there are some things that can be abused in here as well. For example, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And so people who want to have baptismal regeneration camp on that verse along with Acts chapter 2.38 and say you've got to be baptized. But notice that it does correctly say he who does not believe will be condemned. The only condition for salvation is belief. Repentant belief, true belief, real belief, genuine belief, yes. But baptism is what follows belief and gives demonstration to, to that belief. And then, of course, uh, those who are in the, you know, whatever generation of charismatic movement uh, we're in now. What are we in now? Fourth generation or something like that? Fifth? <laughs> uh, who knows? But they want to have all this casting out demons and speaking in tongues and taking up serpents, snake handling and drinking things that are deadly and all of that. We know that those, some of those things were illustrated or exampled in the book of Acts. Uh, some of them... Uh, some of them, you know, were not. We know that, uh, of course, healing was done quite frequently. Um, uh, drinking anything deadly, serpents. We know Paul was bitten there in, uh, on Malta and didn't uh, suffer any serious harms. But to take this and import it into the church age today when the scriptures are very clear that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased is totally inappropriate. So we, we hold this with caution. But we do note that the text correctly says, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And of course, creature is limited to human creatures. We don't preach it to our pets. You know, uh, Cats and dogs can't be saved. Uh, some have asked, is my dog going to be in heaven? I personally believe that's not going to be the case, but there's going to be plenty of cats and dogs and horses and all kinds of other animals there because uh, I think God created them in this world, and uh, there'll be a great variety in the next as well. But uh, sorry if I've burst any bubbles here with that. I just can't prove that uh, you know there's any kind of resurrection of animals. Uh, people, yes. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, but we don't see that for animals. And that kind of makes sense because of the nature of what an animal is but um, not a being that has, a, you know, not made in the image of God. So that's Mark's uh, rendition of it. Let's look in Luke. It's a little more extensive here in Luke. There's no textual uh, variations here that are of significance uh, like there were in Mark. In Luke 24, verse 46, Luke 24 and verse 46, it says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written... And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you have been endued, or sorry, until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came, now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. I mentioned about uh, worship of Jesus on two separate messages in the last couple of Wednesday nights, I think it was. And that verse uh, was either in my list or should be in my list if it wasn't already. Uh, but notice that uh, these things had to be fulfilled the way that they were written. 
in verse 46. And he says, it's necessary that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is this verse, among others, is why, one of the reasons why I just am so mystified when people say that repentance is not part of the gospel. It's part of the Great Commission right here. Just because it doesn't say it in Matthew doesn't mean that it's not part of the message. Matthew just recorded a part of the speech of the Lord. Luke recorded some of the other parts of the speech of the Lord as his, in his last instructions. And so repentance is preached and remission of sins is preached. Notice Does it say there that faith is preached? No. So somebody might say if they weren't harmonizing all the passages together and making, you know, giving the true context, they might say, well, you don't preach faith. You just preach repentance and remission. Well, of course you can preach. In fact, Matthew's gospel doesn't mention faith either. It says make disciples. It doesn't say tell people to invite Jesus into their heart and they'll be happy. You know, happy all the day and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't say that. Um, But we are called to preach repentance and remission of sins in the gospel. And then, of course, he says you are witnesses of these things to the world. Gives the resource here. The Spirit of God is coming. You're to wait for that. This is just an instruction relevant to the first century disciples, just the ones there who were on the the, uh, Mount of Ascension, and they were to wait until they were given that ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the Lord ascends. And our purpose is not to really focus on the Ascension tonight. All right, then John. Let's turn to John chapter 20. I hope you see it's important that we read these portions so that we can kind of put everything together in our mind as to what the Great Commission is in total. In John 20, I'll read first uh, several verses, starting in verse number 21. John 20 and 21. This is the first day of the week, the first day of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in the evening, he comes and uh, sees the disciples. He was, they were in a room where the doors were shut. They were fear, fearing the Jews. And uh, it says in verse number 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, re- if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, don't let your curiosity get you off track. I will talk about that retained and forgiven language later on. I don't want to get hung up on it at the moment, but I will just say, hey, file that away for later. Notice that the the Lord says, as the Father sent me, I send you. Now, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, people will say that means that we have an incarnational kind of ministry. And I would caution you, whenever you see that language, incarnational ministry in, in missions material or Christian literature, Have your ears perk up, your antennas go up, and notice what they're doing. That's that's kind of a watchword for a movement in evangelicalism that is especially interested in carrying out the social gospel. Why? Because Jesus was incarnated and came among men, and then he was with them, and he healed them, and he cast out demons and these sorts of things. So they say, well, these folks that adhere to this kind of incarnational model We must, since Jesus said we're sent as he was sent, there's the the likeness is the things he did, that's the stuff we need to do. Well, we can't do that stuff. We can't cast out demons. We're not instructed how to do that, except if you preach the gospel to somebody and they get saved, then the demons will leave them. (laughs) Um, We uh, don't certainly talk to demons. We uh, don't uh, speak in tongues. We don't... uh, heal people with the touch of our hand. Those gifts aren't given today. So we can't be incarnated like Jesus was. Now, the second problem with that view is we're not incarnated at all. (laughs) There's one incarnation. Jesus was uniquely sent by the Father. So when he says, like I was sent, you're sent, 
What he really means simply saying is that God sent Jesus. Now that was implemented with an incarnation. The Son of God took on human flesh and came among, dwelt among us and all that stuff. Miracles to authenticate him, perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, became our, you know, our substitute and all of that. But he was sent by the Father. Now, he's in the place of authority. And he, remember, all authority was given to him. Now he sends us. Now, how does he send us? Well, we get saved, we get join a church, we start ministering in the church, we find out what our gifts are, we, we hone those gifts, we, we practice them, we encourage one another, we teach the word if that's our gift, we exercise faith if that's our gift, generosity if that's our gift, administration if that's our gift. We do evangelism, we do the work of an evangelist. Some of you may be called to do evangelism in a more special way, in a more kind of vocational way as a missionary. Um, some of us will be called to be pastors, deacons, whatever. That's how we're sent. We're sent within the capacity that God gives to humans today to minister for him, of course, with the power of the Spirit of God working in them. But none of this kind of um, spectacular stuff like we can do what the Lord did. So the as has to be taken correctly. Okay? It's, there's a similarity. Jesus was sent, we're sent. He was sent to do his thing, we're sent to do our thing. Now, specifically, what is our thing? Preach repentance and remission of sins, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything. The Lord has told us what our responsibility is. It's very simple. We are men under authority, and we need to bow to that and say, okay, if he says that, yes, sir, that's what our job is. We're unprofitable servants. We just do what we're told to do. We don't Try to strive for things. I know people have said, oh, I'd like to have this gift and I'd like to have that gift. Yeah, but what about the gift you do have? Just focus on doing that and be satisfied with it. God's given you that, so use it. Don't be jealous of other people or jealous of a prior age in which they had all this spectacular stuff like Peter could walk by and people fall you know, under the, 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 the darkness of his shadow and be healed and garments taken from him and all that. That's not our portion. What is our portion is what we can do, and we need to be busy about that instead of thinking about what things we'd like to do. So um, he talks about the Holy Spirit here as well in verse 22. We'll come to that in a later part of this little series. But at this point, let me take us to Acts chapter 1 because that's the fifth and final portion of Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 1, please. Again, I hope you're following along. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the back and... Um, be following along with us. I'm hoping that you'll see this yourself and be able to kind of replicate. You know, I now remember Pastor taking us through the five repetitions of the Great Commission, and uh, I can do that too. I can just go there to the end of each gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts, and I can find it. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 is really introductory, and then verse 2, I'll start there, after Theophilus, Luke wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles and those whom he had chosen. Just pause there for a moment and just notice, when he was taken up that very day, so these are the last instructions of the Lord, through the Spirit had given commandments to the apostles. Notice that. These are commandments. These are orders from headquarters okay, to the apostles, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he, you know, I think maybe it was in fact in Galilee when he told the disciples, the angels told them, he told the women to tell the disciples he had uh, told them before he even died, go to Galilee after I raise from the dead, arise from the dead, and I'll see you there. I think there were bunches of people there. This was like maybe, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, only we know that there were 500 brethren at one time who saw him alive, plus the apostles, uh, the women that were there. There may have been thousands of people that saw him alive, 500 brothers, people who were believers that Paul knew about had seen him. 
And uh, they saw, many of them saw him off and on during these 40 days. He spoke to the disciples or the apostles regarding the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That is just fascinating to me. What did he say to them? Well, I don't think he said anything to them that was uh, outside of the what were taught in the Old Testament and the early parts of the New Testament about the kingdom of God and what the apostles passed to us in the New Testament epistles about that kingdom. We can do a systematic study of that sometime and see just what the scriptures teach about the kingdom. Suffice it for now to say we're not in the kingdom. We're praying for the kingdom to come, as we've often said. All right, now I go on then in verse number four. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise, he says, of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What was, what's the answer to that question? Yes or no answer? The answer is no. Okay? He doesn't express it that way, but we know that it's no because it didn't happen. And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's the Great Commission again. So you receive power, then you will be witnesses. That's what being partaking in the Great Commission is. You'll be witnesses in those four ever-expanding circles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That pretty much covers it. And then it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who, said, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Well, those are the uh, five portions of Scripture that deal with the Great Commission instruction. Don't use the word, but they don't have to use the word to teach what the word, the idea that's behind the word, okay, or the phrase, the Great Commission. So we head back to the Gospel of Matthew. Back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. If you'd turn there again, we want to focus in on a few verses here. Well, maybe one verse. <laughs> Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, according to the standard Greek dictionary, authority is a word that speaks of the right to control or command something. It is, in this scenario, absolute power over the things that are given into the authority of that person. It's a governing power. It's a directive power. It gives Jesus the right to command people to do things and even not to do things. So think of this. All authority. All authority. What authority does that not include? It's a little hard to think of an example of that. Although the Lord did indicate the times and seasons that the Father has put under his own authority. Okay, so he leaves to God the Father those things that are in his basket, so to speak, in his to-do list. But And I don't want to you know, put the other co-equal members of the Godhead in some kind of competition with one another namely the Father and the Spirit, into competition with Jesus, as, as if he has more power than them or they're withholding something from them. It seems here when the Lord says, all authority has been given to me, uh, all authority has been given to me. What kind of verb is that? What is the voice of that verb? All you grammarians out there? We have a young man who says that's a passive verb because the subject is unexpressed or the agent who does the verb is unexpressed. The subject is receiving the action of the verb is how we could say it. All authority, all authority, that authority has been taken and given to Jesus, but it doesn't tell us who did that. Who do you suppose did that? Did it just drop into his lap, Jackson? 
the authority. Somebody took the authority and it was given to Jesus. Who did that? Probably God the Father. There's not a whole lot of other choices in this, okay, uh, with this question, okay? It probably wasn't the Spirit of God because he doesn't typically do that sort of thing as we see from the revelation of Scripture. So interesting that God the Father is really, we could say, he's not technically the subject, but I say he's the subject or the agent of the passive verb has been given, okay? Did I make that clear, Jackson? I got the grammar sort of so you can understand it. Um, So he is the one, God the Father is the one, from whom Jesus received that authority. But God the Father so completely invested authority, the right to command, to direct, to govern, to rule, he so thoroughly invested that authority in Jesus that Jesus can say, I've got, I've got it all. The Father's de- delegated it all to me. Now, if you think back to Matthew chapter 4, there was a time in which Jesus was offered this kind of authority before. The devil offered him, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you the glory of all of the kingdoms that, that he had just shown him by taking him up on a mountain, showing him the kingdoms of the world. You might interestingly think about what were the kingdoms in the world that were presently active at that time. What were the world empires? Of course, Rome, in that, you know, when Jesus was 30 years old and about you know, 28 AD or whatever, there was Rome. What was in the Far East? What was over here in the, in the West, in, the, in this hemisphere? You might think about that sometime. All of those kingdoms will be yours. At least Satan thought he could offer that to Jesus, and he is, he is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. The, the Bible says God has permitted him to have some authority over the world or had permitted him. But Jesus did not grasp this power in a wrong way or at a wrong time. Wrong way? Because you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Not Satan, not anything else. At the wrong time because his hour had not yet come. He was prophesied to come the first time to suffer for sin, to die and then to rise again from the dead before he was glorified. So he couldn't be glorified before like skip all the bad stuff, you know, bad stuff, and come to the glorification stage just immediately. Couldn't do that. But now, God the Father has handed to Jesus, I say, you know, in a figurative way, the keys of the kingdom. Uh, We know about the keys from Matthew 16 and all that. I'm using it in a slightly different way, but if you think about it like in terms of revelation, he has the keys of Hades and of death, What is the figure of keys is the figure of power, isn't it? Authority. You have the key you can unlock and lock. We just had to have a chain attached to our generator out here to prevent it being uh, snitched this this afternoon, uh, snatched, whatever, uh, by thieves. And um, they're a hot commodity these days. their, their value is quickly going to drop, though, when the electricity comes back on. That's the time to buy a generator, by the way, right after a power outage when people want to get rid of theirs. But um, we had to have a padlock on that, and the gentleman who lent us the chain and the padlocks gave me the keys. I've got the keys to the kingdom. You know, I can control when that thing is locked or unlocked. Um, Jesus has the authority to do that. Now, uh, and, you know, so he's, he's the king. He's then, uh, then and still today the king of heaven and earth. And although he's not physically present here, are you with me? You're not falling asleep back there. You're all able to hear me well. Um, you know, when you start to fall off to sleep and the sounds and the voices start to get kind of that strange, uh, yeah, they just kind of become distant and all that. Don't be doing that right now, okay? You've got at least five to ten more minutes you've got to hang in there. Then you can fall asleep. I know it's getting warm in here. The problem is the bricks are so cold that it's got to warm up the whole building. It's going to take a while, and then it, the air gets a little too uncomfortably warm, but yeah, we'll pay that price. So um, the Lord is not present here. He's waiting for his enemies to be subdued, at which time he will return. We know that because Psalm 110 says, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, it says the same thing. 
interesting. People want to talk about Jesus reigning right now. Hebrews 10.13 says he's waiting right now, waiting to have his enemies put under his feet, waiting to reign. And what he's doing while he's waiting is not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs. First John tells us we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He intercedes for us, pleading the blood of Christ to basically to keep us in his family and not have you know us cast out because of our ongoing sins, but rather that the blood of Christ cleanses us daily from all sin. What a tremendous truth that is. So he's not idle while he's waiting, but he's certainly idle in the sense that he's not reigning on the earth. When he comes and he reigns on the earth, everybody's going to know it. There's not going to be any, you know, I wonder if Jesus is reigning now. You know, you go to Jerusalem and you'll find him there. And the world will be filled with the knowledge of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One of your favorite verses, I like quoting that. It's a very poetic expression of how the Lord's reign will be over the earth. <clears throat> Simply put, Jesus is the sovereign. He is the supreme ruler. He is the monarch. He is the emperor. He is the Caesar. He's the Pharaoh. He has supreme ultimate power. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. Let me say that in this way. The entire lordship debate, have you ever, have you heard of that? The debate about lordship? Lordship, salvation, all of that kind of engulfed evangelicalism the last two generations. That has been put in its place, I think, by the Lord's statement here. If you try to say, now many people who believe, believe against lordship salvation will say, well, of course he's Lord. It's just kind of practically it's kind of optional to, to believe that or to practice that. Uh, but the Lord, I think you have to say, he put that to rest here. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, obviously, when we talk about this debate about lordship and lordship salvation, obviously being perfect or doing works of perfect submission to Christ is not required to be saved. Why? Because salvation is by grace through faith. That's rock solid. We plant that stake in the ground and then we move about that stake. We don't go over here and say you've got to do good works to be saved and all that crazy talk that all the other world religions have. We're not there. So please, anybody listening to this to say, oh, Pastor Postick believes in lordship salvation. You know, what a heretic he is. Listen to what I'm saying. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the glory of God alone based on the word of God alone. Very clear. But the nature of saving faith is not simply trembling belief like the demons have. They believe and they tremble. But they don't, they don't accept the lordship of Christ. They accept the lordship of Satan or the lordship of themselves, but not the lordship of Jesus. When we come to believing in Christ as Lord and submitting to him, as such, we enter into eternal life. In this life, we acknowledge him as Lord. It doesn't mean we're perfect. I mean, Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as, you know, Lord, then, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. He is the Lord. He is the master. He's not less than that. He is more than that. Remember in John 15, 15, I think it is, we said he's our friend. Not only do I call you servants now, but I also call you friend. I've revealed to you what I'm doing. He's far more than just a friend, though. Christians follow him as leader, as Lord. He is the head of the body, isn't he? What is the head? The boss, the authority, the one that runs the show. I think that the whole controversy arose because American evangelicalism became accustomed to a soft or warm and fuzzy version of the gospel. When some Christians began then to speak, and that, what I mean by warm and fuzzy, it's like accept Jesus into your heart, just believe the facts of the gospel, you'll be saved, you'll be fine, you'll have fire insurance, all of that. In that strong context of belief, 
with a true zeal to protect salvation by faith alone, they forgot what faith is. They forgot what it really means and that true faith is repentant faith and true faith is lordship faith and true faith is faith that believes the whole counsel of God. Um, True faith is a faith that James says does what? Works. True faith yields or results in good works. Otherwise, it's dead faith. That's where all the confusion comes from. But when some Christians then began to speak to that kind of branch of American evangelicalism, to speak the biblical language like repentance and the lordship of Christ, people said, whoa, what are you saying? We have never heard that before because we've just heard you believe the gospel. Salvation is by faith alone. But like, what about Luke when it said that repentance and remission of sins has to be preached to the whole world? Repentance and remission of sins. I mean, I've literally read and heard people say, repentance does not occur in the Gospel of John, therefore it's not an issue. Really? That's heresy, my friends. That sounds, it sounds like, oh, they're a real deep student and they looked at every verse in John and they've never seen the, the idea of repentance there. They must be correct. That's not correct. Okay? Not correct. We harmonize all of the texts of the Great Commission together. I'm not trying to attack those folks. Many of them are victims of of bad teaching or incomplete teaching. So we want to correct that. There was, um, you know, this teach this this kind of coming with repentance and true faith and all that offended the easygoing gospel of comfort or social action that was offered in much of the wider evangelical church. There was little emphasis on repentance or the fact that Jesus is King and He's Lord and and there was more focus on accepting Jesus into your heart and obtaining fire insurance, but you don't find that in Scripture. You don't find anywhere where it says, accept Jesus into your heart. It'll say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your iniquities. Um, John eight twenty four. if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, that's, that's not what you hear all the time in American evangelicalism today. Uh, Romans 10.9, we said, wrote Matthew 4.17, I said that already, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Or Acts 17.30, this really rubs people the wrong way. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. Obviously, that's Jesus. Gave proof of that by raising him from the dead and so on. Uh, you know, certainly there are the texts, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, the invitational texts, the texts for those people who I think they're weary, worn, and sad because they've recognized I'm a sinner and I can't do anything to save myself. I don't know where to turn. Well, Jesus says I'm the one to turn to. But then these other texts are for those, you know, hard-hearted, self-autonomous types that say I don't need anything. Well, you're going to have to deal with the fact that the God of the universe has invested all authority in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is commanding you to repent. Now, you can decide you're going to obey that command, or you can decide I'm not going to obey that command, but you just be ready to take the consequences when you do that. Jesus, let me just say that another way. All of this is a matter of authority. All of it's a matter of authority. Are you your own authority, or is Jesus your authority? Most of humanity says, I'm the authority, and I decide that I want to follow this guy or that religion or this idol or whatever. I'm the chooser. What that does is it actually makes them the the little god. I'll choose what I want to do. I'll choose what I, I think is right, as opposed to submitting yourself under the authority of God who says, repent and believe the gospel. You must abandon your self-authority and come under God's authority. Plain and simple. Jesus is exalted above all things. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And his authority is foundational to the Great Commission. Let me share a couple of other verses, and then next time we'll get to that foundational aspect of his authority to the Great Commission I'll just take you to a couple of verses like Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. 
where the scripture says, therefore, and this is about the exaltation of Christ now, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the promise, from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so when I'm, when I'm wrapping up this segment of our discussion about the lordship of Christ, his authority, I'm trying to get you to see in the scriptures that God has exalted him to the highest place. Acts chapter 5, verse 31 says this, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Boy, that sounds a lot like the gospel we read before, repentance and remission, repentance and forgiveness. It's the same thing. Or uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 20, it says this power this wonderful power of resurrection which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated, at, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Two more verses and then we're done. One is in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 1. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Is that a place of power or what? And how about this? Maybe you're tracking with me and you're saying, Pastor, why aren't you sharing with us Philippians chapter 2? Which says this, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth. Does that sound like all authority has been given from he- in heaven and on earth? Absolutely. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that buttons up the case, my friends. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Next time, we're going to look at how this authority is foundational to the Great Commission and just have a few points about that. We're going to look at what the assignment of the Great Commission is after that. Then we're going to look at the assurance of the Great Commission And uh, if uh, the mood strikes me, I'll carry on to a fourth section, which is the resources of the Great Commission. Very important, the resources, the assurance, the assignment, and the foundation of the Great Commission. This is, well, we have to spend time on it because it's the Lord's last instructions, and it's specifically kind of summarizing what our business is to be doing while we're here. Not just coming to church, you know, I mean, we struggle. You know, come to church even if it's a little cold inside. Or come even though it's a little inconvenient. Or, the, you know, we don't have all the comforts and all of that sort of stuff. Man, friends, if we're struggling with that, I mean, forget that. Just struggling on a regular Sunday or Wednesday night prayer time to get people to come, we're not even close to this. I mean, it's kind of sad you know, and this is the burden of the pastor's heart. Every pastor, I mean, whether it's a church exactly like ours or not, I mean, it's funny, we have, you have churches who are not exactly in our orbit, but you talk to the pastor, they have the exact same problems that we have, the same burdens for their flock. They might believe a little differently about, you know, baptism or this or that or church polity or something like that, but they're all dealing with the same kinds of problems, some of them much, much more difficult than what we've had to deal with. Um, but, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to get back to this because, uh, you know, we're, we're not even close if we're saying, well, I'm the boss, the Lord's the authority, he's in charge. And uh, so church isn't a social club, it's not just a gathering place. It is a place for us to be encouraged, edified, taught. But it's also a Coast Guard rescue operation where we're to go out and we're to make disciples under the authority of heaven given to Jesus. And uh, that's, the, that's the operational thing on this earth. You know, no federal government can interfere with this authority. No accrediting agency can tell us you can't exercise that authority. We have that authority. You know, I hate to be contrary, but when the governor tells us we can't meet for church, we say, I don't know where you think you're getting off saying that. But yeah, stay in your lane is how we say that today. Your lane is the government lane. Our lane is the church lane. You stay out of our lane. We're going to worship God if we please to worship God. Okay? 
And uh, we, that's just how it is. So join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, help us not to be uh, cantankerous, but to be firm in our beliefs. Help us to uh, exhort one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching, Lord, we have a big job to do. It's called the Great Commission. We have a, a foundational authority for that job, and that's because the Lord Jesus has been given all of that authority. Lord, help us today, I pray. Live the way that we ought to. Um, carry on the Great Commission as we ought to. Be serious about the things of God. Not let uh, things distract us from that or take us away from that. Focus on what the Lord has asked us to do. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.